This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 415, August the 5th, 1998. Tonight, our discussion will be limited to the three of us, Douglas Murray, Mark Rushduni, and myself, because some of our people are uh, either out of town or tied up with other uh, concerns for the time being. We are grateful to those of you who send in questions. If at times we are slow in answering them, it is because we have a great many on hand. At other times we are now near the bottom of the barrel as tonight, but we have a particularly important question, a key question. Send in Oh, the latter part of April by Edward Lewis, or rather, uh, Richard A. Lewis in Pittsford, New York. Now, this is what he asks. I have heard you speak of Greek thought on some of your lectures. Could you please clarify the relationship between Greek thought and Christian thought? Are they totally antagonistic? Were all Greek thinkers, including Plato and Aristotle, Gnostics? How does Greek or Gnostic thought affect church and politics today? Now, I'm grateful for that question. It's a key question, extremely important, because our failure to see the line of division has led to a great deal of confusion in our civilization and in Christian thought. First of all, there is a difference between Greek thought and Gnostic thought. Gnostic is spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. -S. Now the Gnostics were a later and thoroughly logical development of Greek philosophy. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word meaning knowledge. As the term implies, it means a basic trust by a civilization, a philosophy, or a religion in knowledge as the means of salvation. That, of course, should ring bells for you because a great deal of education in the Western world has trusted in uh, education and knowledge as the means of personal and social salvation. I developed that point, of course, in my book on American philosophies of education, the uh, messianic character. <coughs> what? Messianic character. The messianic character of American education. Thank you, Mark. Now, the key difference between biblical and Greek thinking is that Greek thinking begins with man. Biblical thinking begins with God. Never in biblical thinking nor in Christian faith and philosophy that is thoroughly biblical does a man ever begin by trying to prove God. God is the source of all proof. 
Therefore, we begin with God and the existence of God because without God there could be nothing. Now, in Greek thought, you begin and end with man, human reason. And man is the prover of all things and therefore the implicit God of Greek thinking. Now, this, of course, led to Gnosticism, the emphasis on knowledge as salvation. Well, all the Greek thinkers who were genuinely Greek, most certainly including Plato and Aristotle, were anti-biblical in their presuppositions. They were not apparently aware of the Bible, but if they were, and the Greeks were curious about other kinds of thinking, it was beneath their dignity to concern themselves with it. The essence of Greek thinking was that one began with one's reason. You proved all things. This meant that there was no law overarching and over-governing every sphere of thought. Plato never wrote until his old age a book on laws, and it's a book that deals with temporary uh, social structures. In other words, in his Republic, Plato gives us his vision of the ideal government by philosopher kings. We had our group of philosopher kings almost openly so labeled under Roosevelt who collected around him a so-called brain trust. This was clearly an imitation of Plato. Now, these philosopher kings were to rule without law. They were to regulate society in terms of the moment. This meant that for Greek thinking, there was no overarching law of God or man that predetermined anything in any sphere. You began by trying to establish for yourself what justice and right and wrong and anything else should be in terms of society and its needs. You had a group of philosopher kings who then governed society, a very small class, a ruling class, then a group of soldiers, then merchants and ordinary people. It was only when Plato saw no hope of realizing his ideal republic in his lifetime that he created his book, The Law, in order to have a stopgap thing until they could have their philosopher kings. Well, this is very, very different from uh, biblical thought. In biblical thought, you begin with God, the creator of all things. You can do nothing nor think nothing 
or have any valid social order without God. And so God is presupposed from one end of the Bible to the other. The Bible never spends a moment trying to prove there is a God. It assumes that that is the starting point. Greek thought used the idea of God, and you can find references to God, for example, in Aristotle and in others, but God was a limiting concept. They did not believe in him as the creator, only as a way of escape from infinite regress. <clears throat> now, the idea of infinite regress troubled the Greeks. They did not like the idea of saying, well, this or that made the world. Well, what was there before? Who made that which made the world? And then the next question was, who made that which made the world, and so on. They felt they had to back up until they found a starting point. What has happened in the modern era is the man has no longer felt a need, like the Greeks, for a starting point. He can say that billions of years ago there was nothing, but some kind of spark created the first atom and this has led to everything that has occurred since then by chance, by evolution. Well, that presupposes an original spark that has all the potentiality of God, of all the universe of men and ideas and things. So you have an original spark that uh, is as creative as God, <laughs> but it's neither alive nor capable of thinking or anything else. It's a ridiculous idea. Well, <clears throat> what happened was that uh, the Greco-Roman world believed in the Greco-Roman view of origins. The <clears throat> early church fathers were heavily influenced by this kind of thinking. As a result, although they accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, they turned away from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as the Creator. They posited an evolution, a beginning. Now, the God they posited was thus not a real living God, he was just a li limiting concept, to use a philosophical term. A limiting concept is a way of uh, escaping the implications of your thinking. You have no other answer, so you posit a limiting concept. Well, this is what they did. As a result, you find many of the church fathers, including very, very superior men, who throughout their lives or sometimes in the early years of their faith could not believe in creation. They accepted an evolution. 
among those who was that way inclined was Saint Augustine. Well, this meant that the virus of Greek thinking of Plato and Aristotle, antinomian to the core, with no belief in God's law, entered the church. So you had two strata within the church. You had those who were simple, devout believers who believed the Bible and believed, therefore, that God created the heavens and the earth in six days. Or you had those who were influenced by Greek thought and whose thinking was thus radically evolutionary. This led finally to the triumph of Platonism and Neoplatonism in Eastern Orthodoxy and to scholasticism and the triumph of Aristotle in Western uh, churches, Latin Christianity. And what is the difference between Platonism and Aristotelianism? Well, there are internal differences, but both begin with human reason, the priority of it. And uh, Plato is much more idealistic uh, in that he dreams of this perfect society, the republic so-called, which was no republic, in which the philosopher kings rule. Aristotle never held to such a belief. In his politics, he affirms a humanistic society. He affirms a world where uh, rulers rule with the basic philosophical presuppositions of Greece and Rome. But he is not visionary. He doesn't create an ideal social order. He simply believes in one that we would say is radically humanistic. For him, politics is the ultimate sphere of life. You would have to say that his religion is a political salvation. Well, it was so for Plato, but much more radically. But both of them see politics as man's hope as man's way of salvation. Aristotle was the tutor and counselor to Alexander the Great. So through Alexander, his thinking was spread far and wide. Now, the Reformation was a revolt against Greek philosophical influences on Christendom. This revolt was clearest and most profound and most thoroughgoing in John Calvin. Luther also represented it, but not as consistently. As a result, for Calvin, thinking began with, thus saith the Lord, with God and his word. And every area of life and thought had to be governed by biblical faith, whether it was philosophy or theology or anything else, education, 
every sphere of life. Well, you can see how logically, in terms of the Greek world of thinking, politics and education became the means of salvation. Hence, I wrote on the messianic character of American education. This meant that the Western uh, nations became more and more messianic, more and more geared to the salvation of men and society through Greek thinking. In fact, they went so far as to make the use of uh, certain scriptures, most notably Mary's Magnificat, where she praises the Lord for the coming of Christ, who will overturn all things. The rich hath he sent empty away, and the poor hath he exalted from their low estate. That was regarded as treasonable to use that song in the church. Is the Church of England? or Oh, uh, the continental churches, all the churches. Well, the a church, as it left Luther and Calvin, Calvin in particular, saw a revival of Eastern thought. For example, you find as you read the records of the American Puritans that they are reading both Calvin and St. Thomas Aquinas uncritically. And they're imbibing ideas from Aquinas as well as from Calvin. Since you brought up Aquinas, um what were the main strains or avenues of Greek thinking in the, um, from the early church to the Reformation? You mentioned Thomas Aquinas, uh, was, and he was basically a rationalist. Yes. Um, were there any other main um, notable avenues or, or examples of uh, Greek thinking and how it affected the, the Almost church? all the medieval thinkers. The exceptions are few and far between, uh, notably uh, Anselm, whose thinking begins with, I believe in order that I may understand, as against, I understand in order that I may believe. In other words, that reason precedes faith. That was his premise. Calvin went back to Anselm and to the Bible. Now, education in the modern age, as it became increasingly influenced by Greek thinking, became more and more dedicated to salvation by education. In the last century, the uh, influence of the Greek thinkers was so great that there were thinkers in England, for example, who felt that virtually that the Greek philosophers should be virtually included in the Bible. And these were men who were uh, noted for their godliness. One such great Christian leader was Gladstone, Prime Minister of England. 
a very biblical man in many respects, and yet so totally Greek that you marvel at the uh, confusion in his thinking. Is, is this when um, study of the Greek classics, Greek mythology yes. became embedded as uh, a necessary part of education? Yes. The study of the Greek classics and of Greek ideas was far more extensive in public education a generation ago than it is today. I can recall how basic it was to schooling when I was in grade school and high school and at the university. It has decreased some since then, but not because the basic faith in education and reason has declined or in any sense been supplanted. It's just been brought up to date so they don't feel they need to mention the Greeks as much as they once did. To use the Greeks is to be past-oriented. It's better to begin with your reason and then to be present and future-oriented. Well, as you can see, there has been a basic conflict in civilization from the beginning between Greek thought and philosophy and biblical thought. Now, Sunday mornings we've been dealing with 1 Corinthians. You can see it in the background there. When Paul spends a great deal of time upholding the doctrine of the resurrection, what he is saying is, your starting point is that you are saved by the atonement of Jesus Christ. You have a duty to perform, to conquer the world for Christ. The resurrection is the goal of history, the general resurrection, when men are recreated totally new and serve the Lord in the eternal kingdom of God. So that for the Greek world of thinking, life after death or immortality is a natural development. For the Bible, it's a supernatural gift, and it tells us what the goal of history is. Whereas for the Greeks, it's an evolving thing where man produces the future. So the differences between the two are very, very great. And, of course, in the 20th century, some of the Dutch thinkers, and in particular Cornelius Van Til, have done the most to draw a line of se separation between the world of Greco-Roman thought and biblical thought. And I, through Chalcedon, have attempted to further that line of division so we can purge the church of this sorry relic of pagan thinking and again be fully Christian, begin with the apostolic faith and seek thereby 
to conquer the world. The difference, therefore, is extremely great between the two. And we have to see that difference in order to begin again with a hope of victory. This is why Van Til's thinking is so all-important and why there has been so much hostility to it because he has pointed out the great error of Christendom, its waywardness, and how it has cut out the heart of the faith and it has limited salvation to being born again, not to a total biblical program that affects every area of life and thought. Now, we'll spend the next half hour dealing with questions and developments of this, but do you want to start now with some uh, questions about the difference between Greco-Roman and Christian thinking? Well, I had a question regarding the consequences. You mentioned earlier that the uh, regarding the philosopher kings and the uh, uh, cabinet uh, positions that the uh, president of the United States has uh, adopted. I just wondered what uh, period did that start? When did the first cabinet positions uh, evolve? Uh, the obvious destructive consequences of this is that we now have a, an imperial presidency where the president has magnified really the importance of his office and the power of his office far beyond what the framers of the Constitution had in mind. Uh, he was simply to be uh, uh, a chief executive and uh, not, in effect, be ruling by decree with uh, executive orders and the like. I just wondered if you could enlighten us on that. Well, that's a very, very important question. Some of the earlier presidents did have cabinet officials who were interested in remaking the United States and especially appointments to the Supreme Court of men who thought that uh, the Constitution had to be an evolving document. It was written for a horse and buggy era and it had to be modernized. Well, we have that opinion very much with us, and we have created cabinet offices simply to take over areas to ensure that this will happen. For example, it's very clear that before the present trend, state schools were, whatever their faults, still better than they are today. So when we created a federal office of education, what we did was to impose requirements and standards on state schools from coast to coast that have done a great deal to warp them, to direct them in a particular direction, and to impose upon them standards alien to reading, writing, and arithmetic, basic skills of knowledge, uh, to include instead basic philosophical perspectives. Thus, 
While there were cabinet men and certainly Supreme Court men who, prior to Roosevelt, saw themselves as philosopher kings, since Roosevelt, it has been almost routine for cabinet members and uh, judges to see themselves as having a calling work of Congress, to rewrite the laws. And are there any questions now? Well, I was going to ask you to touch on the science uh, aspect. Uh, it's always seemed almost amusing to me uh, through my lifetime to watch the, uh, the desperate attempt by scientists to try and prove their theory of evolution by uh, the study of anthropology. Mm -hmm. uh, they've been digging in Africa for uh, the last hundred years, I suppose, probably a good deal longer, uh, looking for the so-called missing link. And now they've shifted the emphasis away from anthropology because it hasn't worked. Everything yes. they've come up with, every time they hold a bone up in the air or some uh, physiological artifact that they find, uh, it turns out to be uh, nothing uh, uh, like what they uh, claim it to be. Uh, now they're making a desperate attempt to listen for voices from outer space, <laughs> which <laughs> uh, you would think at some point that uh, uh, they would begin to question their approach and uh, question the, uh, the basis of their, uh, their thesis. Well, they haven't so far. They are ready to explain. Uh, express a faith in some very ridiculous ideas because those ridiculous ideas do not posit a God but rather a chance development of life. We have as a result increasing absurdity in much scientific thinking because the only valid answer, the biblical one, is rejected. Now, Greek thinking was ready to accept anything if it came from a world of chance. Van Til's made this point tellingly when he discusses Paul's address when he was in Athens on Bar's Hill to the philosophers. He dealt with a resurrection the philosophers listened. They found it very, very interesting, even exciting. This word about someone in Jerusalem who had risen from the dead. But when Paul said this was the act of God the Father, his predestined act, they turned away and dismissed him, saying, we will hear this man again some other time. The reason for it was they were ready to accept the resurrection as an accident, as a freakish occurrence, which might or might not demonstrate the next step in evolution. 
As Dr. Van Til pointed out, this is why such thinkers were interested in uh, two-headed calves, any freakish birth, because could this be the next step in evolution? So they were intensely curious about any and every fact, however offbeat, but not in God's truth. So a two-headed calf meant more than witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ if those witnesses began with the belief and the certainty of God's ordination of that event. Totally different world. One a world of chance, the other a world of God's predetermined counsel. I observed a curious uh, uh, dichotomy in uh, southern Germany, in Bavaria, actually. Uh, when you go into the museums of natural history in southern Germany and what they had available in the 1950s in Austria when I was there, uh, there was an intense interest in just what you pointed out. They had vast displays of these uh, uh, I guess you would call them uh, genetic uh, mutations. Uh, yet, if you went walking in the countryside, uh, you couldn't go 250 feet without running into a Christian shrine. And it seemed like, you know, there was a uh, uh, an internal conflict within the mm -hmm. people there as to uh, which path to follow. Yes. That conflict has been basic to the Western world, and either they will resolve it or go down in total defeat. This coming generation may see one or the other solution. You actually have university professors studying all kinds of freakish events today, including the Toronto Revival, not because they're Christian, but it's a freakish event which apparently changes people. Therefore, any such thing is a development of what the future may bring forth. Could you explain uh, Gnostic thought a little bit more? You said it was a, a later but a natural development of Greek thinking. Um, how was it different from Greek thinking? And, uh, what w in its, what, in a, and what was its emphasis? And, and how did it affect the church? Well, Gnostic thought was a belief in salvation by knowledge. It infected the church because it was ready to latch on to any new thing as proof of the development of the world and human society. So the Gnostics very early found the Gospels, which were circulating widely, and reinterpreted them and the letters of the New Testament. Their reinterpretation did not see that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but in the, begin in the beginning, in the eons before uh, eons of time, this or that uh, event occurred 
in a world of uh, dead matter. And before that, something else occurred. These things could be called demiurges, uh, a number of names. They were not gods, they were just forces which came into play. And out of this came the evolution, the development of the world. So their perspective was totally in salvation by knowledge. And uh, their science was up to date for its time. Although today for us it's so ridiculous we wonder that any intelligent man ever believed it. You can uh, sit down before a page or two pages out of an old Gnostic work which describes how the Demiurge took matter and developed it thus and so and you read it and you reread it and you can't make heads nor tails of it. What I've said simplifies it. What I've said doesn't do it justice because I try to bring a sensible meaning out of it. And you have to realize these people, although their thesis was salvation by knowledge of these things, ultimately, as with all rationalists, were irrationalists because they did not believe in a God who ordered all things in his sovereign wisdom, but in blind, meaningless forces of nature, which somehow, through some accident, created a spark of life or new development. You see, if you believe in the one, in Greek thought, you have to believe that the ultimate power is accidental power. If you believe in the Bible, you have to believe that the ultimate power is the triune God, totally rational, totally self-conscious, totally purposive. Now, if we believe in the Gnostic system, we will ultimately rebel against a biblical perspective even though we may begin by trying to fuse the two, or we will so reinterpret it that it becomes meaningless. As Gnosticism developed after the first century or two, it became more and more weird, more and more crazy, so that it collapsed to a great extent. Not that it disappeared entirely, there were elements of Gnostic thinking all through the centuries. So, salvation by knowledge, Gnosticism, discredited itself because it had to destroy reason and meaning in life. Chance is ultimate. What was, <clears throat> what was the... Uh uh, the actual practical uh, uh, antagonism between the church in that day and the Greek philosophers. What Was there any discourse between them at all? Uh, that's an interesting question. One would hope that there was a great deal of antagonism, but there wasn't. 
the Greco-Roman world was so accustomed to thinking in terms of Plato, Aristotle, and other Greek thinkers that they began by presupposing the truth of it. As a result, when they became converted, they tried to adjust and accommodate their thinking to include Christian thinking. So it was Greco-Roman thinking plus the Bible. You have St. Gregory of Nyssa, for example, writing on the five books of Moses. And all he does is to allegorize it so thoroughly that nothing means what it does to the text of the Bible. God could not possibly have been interested in man's diet. Therefore, the dietary laws are not true. One law after another is taken and reinterpreted in ways that are really ridiculous. So the same, th same approach is being carried on by our Supreme Court. Uh, yes. To mar marginalize and, and therefore make ineffective uh, the Constitution. You see it also by some evangelicals as they reinterpret the Bible. They take everything to mean something else so that you can go through the laws of sacrifice with very little said about sacrifice. They're so bent on determining the meaning of the colors of the uh, altar, each piece of it, the curtains, the furnishings. So they come up with a lot of esoteric meanings and the real meaning is bypassed. The, um, the version of uh, classical studies that I received in the uh, public schools during the 1940s was uh, politely sanitized regarding the uh, Greek uh, sexual practices. They left that totally out. You didn't find out about that until many, many years later. Uh, didn't this create a great deal of tension and antagonism between Christianity and, uh, and the Greeks? Not really. The Greek practice, which is openly described by Plato, who was himself a homosexual, is homosexuality. And yet, somehow, this was supposedly on a noble plane. As a matter of fact, as recently in my lifetime, a prominent European philosopher who taught, I believe, at Oxford, either Oxford or Cambridge, was openly a homosexual, was criticized because his homosexual companions were uh, lo the lowest class uh, picked up at uh, the worst kind of bars and they felt it should be something between exalted, noble intellectuals. So they were mildly critical of this particular philosopher, who some regard as one of the greatest philosophers of the modern age. But uh, they have been ready to accommodate it. And it's very sad that uh, even in uh, important Christian circles, there has been uh, a tendency 
in the past couple of centuries to gloss over the Greek vices, in particular homosexuality, in the name of the nobility of the philosophers. Greek uh, thinkers, Plato and Socrates in particular. One reason why, as I indicated, the Greek thinkers are not as much stressed as they were a couple of generations ago, and even to World War II, is because they have said we should look less to the past and more to the present thinkers and to the future. So it's only uh, that perspective that has led to modern uh, writers replacing the Greeks, but it's the same kind of thinking, no different. Behind the uh, gay rights movement and revolution has been precisely this emphasis on Greco-Roman thinking. Was the revival of the uh, Olympic Games at the end of the last century, um, did, did that have a, a philosophical basis behind it? Well, an excellent question. The revival of the Olympic Games has behind it this Greek ideal, the uh, perfection of the human body, the exaltation of all its potentialities. This has been done to the point of absurdity. Now, I may be criticized for what I'm about to say, but I believe very strongly in it. One of the things that I think uh, is commonplace now, widely praised by the media and promoted in many circles, is the attempt by various people with serious handicaps to uh, perform all kinds of uh, acts of athletic prowess to demonstrate that they are not handicapped. Well, take for example the particular event featured recently on television in the news, day after day for a while. This man who was climbing the sheer wall of an ice-covered mountain. It took him days. He had a man with him who was giving him advice step by step, but he did it. Well, true, it was a very remarkable feat. Amazing that he could do it, but uh, when you look at the toll, our emphasis on such performances has taken. Consider the fact, and some have written about this, the number of uh, children in their early teens who have been crippled for life because of either uh, preparing for the Olympics or participating in them. And uh, physiologists have a time or two indicated 
it is premature. But we have fallen in love with that sort of thing. There's something wonderful in a group of men playing basketball in wheelchairs, or is there? Well, there's, a, there's an important distinction. In our society, uh, these folks are richly rewarded economically, yes. and the lure of accumulating great wealth through a product, uh, what's the endorsements. endorsements, product endorsements by everybody in sports. I mean, you know, we've got with the Olympics, every one of these Olympic stars, Olympic skaters and so forth, they all go on to become either uh, professionals, uh, performing professionals, but it's the uh, enormous endorsement value is what drives them. And the parents that drive their kids because they they dangle these great rewards out there. And uh, uh, then we have, you know, the NFL is a, almost the recreation of the Roman games. Uh, yes. The, uh, the preparations uh, before the game and the halftime. And uh, kids are uh, encouraged at a very young age to get into those kinds of heavy contact sports. And uh, uh, it, it's not difficult to find young children that have sustained uh, uh, life, uh, that will have injuries, cartilage injuries, bone injuries, that they'll carry with them all of their lives. And they're being driven by their parents. Yeah. And you see the parents of some of these little league games and they're practically frothing at the mouth. Yes, and uh, we rarely deal with the toll of some kinds of athletic activities among the strong and the healthy, as for example, football. I have had uh, men who played university football tell me of the numbers of people with whom they played are permanently crippled and are in uh, specialized uh, nursing homes, wards full at times. And uh, more than one football player has told me, I'm against the sport, my kid's not going to play. Well, they become training grounds for the professionals. It's like the, you know, yes. the, the farm teams that start in grade school just about. Uh, they're brought along through varsity uh, high school and they're scouted actually these kids are scouted in in high school junior high school and high school and they actually have people who follow them the the high performers the ones that the coaches will think uh, think will do the best and have motivated parents very important have motivated parents yes. who will provide whatever economic resources are necessary in order to propel that kid into a professional sports uh, career, if, provided they have the ability and the talent. Well, it is interesting, reading the Greek writers, the civilization of Sparta was the extreme case of a Greek city-state dedicated to this athletic perfection, and it produced no great men, just athletes male and female, were dedicated to this ideal. And I can recall when uh, Sparta was upheld as a great uh, culture in schools. Not so now. But uh, 
this kind of thing has had a powerful influence in our civilization and a great many uh, proverbs created to back it up. The most popular is that the uh, British Empire was won on the playing fields of Aten. That uh, the Greek-inspired athletics at Eton created the culture that led to the conquest of the British Empire. Well, in reality, it was the Scottish uh, uh, poor class who had no place to go but to join the British Army, where it was said, Her Majesty's enemies are expendable. They were put on the front lines, and they would not retreat. And that's how Britain won its mm -hmm. empire. Well, the, everybody assumes that, the, I guess, that the saying, uh, winning, uh, uh, it's not how whether you win or lose, but it's how you play the game. I grew up uh, assuming that that was something that came from the English uh, culture. And then we have the, the Vince Lombardi maxim uh, from football that winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Mm -hmm. And kids are brought up today believing that, and they go into business, and uh, they go through life and they have to win. Uh, there's no give and take. Uh, there's uh, you know little or no compromise. It's you know they've got to go to the wall on everything. Otherwise, their uh, uh, their uh, compromise is simply not in their vocabulary. Very good. Well, our time is nearly up. Uh, do you have a question or two before we close? I want to thank. Uh, Richard Lewis for bringing up this point because it does need clarification. It is a basic question. Don't hesitate to send your questions in. Uh, right now we are in need of a lot of questions. God bless you all and thank you for listening. <laughs>